0: So if somebody were to ask you who the most amazing person who ever lived was, who would you say? Who would be your your top vote? Anybody? Very good. Good answer. All right, you're like, is that, I mean, I know in Sunday school that's right, but is that also right in the service? Yes, Jesus is usually the answer if you want to give the answer. Uh, For some people, though, the easy answer isn't so easy, and so they need to make things complicated. So recently, Time Magazine uh, went out and they got a hold of this algorithm that helped them basically decide who the most influential or amazing person in all of history was. And uh, you'll be surprised to find that after all of their research and they put everything in the algorithm, they found out who they thought the most interesting person in the world was. And guess who it was? Jesus! Yeah, so uh, we were very grateful for all that work, but they just could have come to Sunday school and we would have told them the answer to that. Uh, What's fascinating is there were other people that made the list. Uh, In fact, Justin Bieber was just like uh, 8,600 votes below him uh, on the the, the rail. So uh, I guess that means that me and you would maybe be somewhere around 800,000. But anyway, it's it's really great to see that uh, they've been able to tell us who is important and who is not. Um, what's really funny, though, is, is I think my five year old Jack could have told them who the most important person in history was. But this morning, what we want to do is we're going to jump into a new series in what is the shortest of the four Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, that takes really about 45 minutes if you were just to read it straight through. It is the shortest Gospel. Historically, some have not paid much attention to it because it is so short. But what I believe we have here is, in this gospel, what I would consider to be the amazing true story of Jesus. It's the amazing true story of Jesus, the most amazing person that's ever lived. And Mark actually argues that Jesus is, by his account, the most amazing person that has ever lived. Now, as you're thinking through this gospel, we actually have an early testimony about the way that Mark put this gospel together in the early 2nd century by a guy named Papias. Now, Papias was actually writing, quoting um, uh, an elder that he had had earlier tell him that this is the way that we think about Mark and understand Mark. And this is, I think, helpful as we start out thinking about where did the gospel of Mark comes from and how did he write it? This is what he says. This is what the elder, the the other elder that that taught him this, used to say, maybe an apostle. He says, Mark became Peter's interpreter. So the the apostle Peter. And he wrote accurately, though not in order, all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord. For he had not himself heard the Lord or been his follower. But later, as I said, he followed Peter. And his one concern was to leave nothing out of what he had heard and make no false statements in reporting them. So that's the way that that he understood the Gospel of Mark, and I I think that's a trustworthy statement as to the way that we understand Mark. Peter gave Mark uh, his material as the one who walked with Jesus. Now, Papias also later says that Matthew is different and that he wrote his Gospel in order. So catch this. Mark likely assembled these stories from Peter's preaching. So we have a lot of preaching from Peter here in Mark's gospel. And now, after reading through this book a number of times in preparation for this, uh, I'm guessing that Peter must have been an exciting preacher because Mark's gospel moves more like an action flick than a documentary, right? I mean, as you read through it, what you'll find is, is that after something happens, he says immediately something else happens, right? So the pace is really rapid. And not only is it fast moving, we find that uh, after Jesus acts and speaks, the people that are watching it are constantly saying something to the fact of, and they were amazed, or they were astonished by what they had seen. And so as we read through this gospel, what we're going to see is it is full of energy. Energy that probably reflected the character and personality of Peter, but also the importance of the story that he was telling. Now, as as we look at this, though many people are amazed by the amazing works of Jesus, what we also see is is the hero of Mark's story, Jesus, was a historical figure of recent past. So he's he's writing about somebody who hadn't lived much before him. And uh, when we read his story, it's interesting that this hero of his story so often looks so much more like Clark Kent than Superman, right? So, so he, he does amazing acts, but it's almost like he constantly has his, his glasses back on because as people look at him, he tells them either to be quiet about what they've seen and not tell anyone, or it's almost as though people can't put together the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and what this means for them. And so as we move through this story, we find that Mark's amazing Jesus is also often unrecognized, He is rejected. He is humiliated, abandoned, and finally crucified. You know, He, I think, would be seen as an epic failure if not for what one commentator speaks of as a last comforting lightning flash of an empty tomb. See, the book, which is meant to be read aloud, is really broken up into two geographic sections. The first centers on Jesus' public ministry As he's in Galilee, and then the second half, we see him uh, beginning to go down the road to Jerusalem where he ultimately will be crucified and then raised from the dead. I'm excited about this series because it is going to expose us to the unadulterated Jesus who will not, I don't believe, let us walk away with any kind of mistaken notions about who he is. I mean, do you want to know about Jesus and who he is? Yes? Well, where's a great place to find out about Jesus? How about Jesus' revelation of Himself to us? And so Jesus is going to tell us through His Word about who He is. And as C.S. Lewis famously quipped, we're all, as we're going through this, going to have to decide how we are going to understand Jesus for ourselves. So as you read through this, are you going to take Jesus as being a liar or a lunatic or your Lord? There really are no other options. Either we will receive Him or we will reject Him for who He says He is. Now some have questioned whether... Or not, Jesus was greater than John the Baptist. I believe that was an argument that was probably going on early in the first century. John the Baptist was kind of a big deal. And so many were asking, how does Jesus relate to John the Baptist? In fact, still today, there is a cult, the Mendeans, who continue to follow John the Baptist and reject Jesus as the Messiah. Well, that's why Mark begins this gospel explaining who John is to show us who Jesus is. And this is the main point of our message this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. We're going to see that Jesus is greater than any human that has ever lived, so we must change. Jesus is greater than any human that has ever lived. And what that means for you and me is that we we must change. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So why don't we begin first with a big vision of Jesus. We're going to start with a big view of Jesus in verse 1 so look there with me look there with me at at verse 1 this is how the gospel begins it says the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god jesus christ the son of god and what i love about mark is he doesn't bury the lead in his story in fact he is lighting it up on a billboard for you and me in this very first verse where he lets his hearers in on what is going on before it ever begins He says, let me just tell you where this story's going, okay? The rest of it is going to be an explanation, but let me just give you a quick one-liner about where we're going. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, all right? Now, everything from here on out is going to be detail about that, proving that. But before we get there, I just want you to know where this story is going. And what's fascinating is... If you're reading the story, you realize that that seems to be the one thing that everybody else is grappling with, not getting confused about, being hidden from. And yet, right at the beginning, those who read or hear this know what Mark's main point is. To Jesus, we learn a lot about him in this first sentence according to Mark. Not just because his name was Jesus. See, Jesus was a real popular name back then. We, we find in the New Testament there are actually two or three other uses of uh, the name Jesus. There are two other, three other Jesuses in the New Testament. Uh, Josephus is writing about the same time. And he says uh, that he speaks of about 20 other Jesuses. So Jesus was a pretty popular name. It was ranked pretty high on the popular name scale. You know, when we named my, my son Jackson... Uh, we thought it was a really cool, unique name until we find out that like, it was the top name for three years running, right? Everybody named their kids Jackson that year. Well, Jesus was one of the most popular names at that time, in that time in history. And so Jesus uh, was a popular name, but the reason was because it was attached to an Old Testament name, Joshua. See, Jesus is the, the Greek translation for Joshua. Joshua, of course, was that great hero of the Old Testament, who led the people of God, Israel, out of 40 years of wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, over the Jordan and into the promised land of God. And so, if you're thinking about Joshua, uh, naming your son Joshua would be much like saying, um, This is a little conqueror who's gonna do great things for God. In fact, the very name Joshua comes from the Hebrew, Joshua uh, means Yahweh saves. So there's this anticipation of this child being someone who is great. But there was no one that bore that name with the same kind of power and majesty as this Jesus of Nazareth did. Because Jesus wasn't just simply Jesus. He was Jesus who was the Christ. See, Jesus is the Christ. That's not his last name. But Christ is actually a title that tells you something about who Jesus is. Now, in in Hebrew, the the title would have been Messiah. Uh, In in this, here in the New Testament, it becomes Christ. And this word, what it means is it means that that this person is an anointed king. In fact, the Old Testament prophets looked forward to a great Messiah or coming king who would come and save the people of God. And this king, we are told, would be much like David the famed great King of Israel, who led the nation to be great beyond precedence. And Jesus also, of course, here decide, uh, described as the Son of God. Now, Son of God here, it could just be a synonym, could mean the same thing as Christ. In fact, kings were often referred to as the Son of God. You see in 2 Samuel 7 that God made an everlasting covenant with King David. And he promised to raise up one of his sons in the future, establishing the throne of that son forever. And if you look in 2 Samuel 7.14, you'll see that God promises that king that he will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. Do you see that? The king will be a special son to God the Father. And King David picks up on this in Psalm 2.7. He imagines, what, what is this? king the son that's going to come from me what is he going to be like in psalm 2 7 he speaks of this great king who appears before the raging nations and god as he laughs at them as they seek to reject god and fight against him god says as he laughs i have set my king on my hill on my holy hill and i will tell of the decree the lord said to me you are my king Son, today I have begotten you. See, clearly Jesus is not just any king and not just any son of God. He is the one-of-a-kind Son of God who is the long-awaited Messiah. The one who has come to save the people of God. There's none like Him. You hear me? There's none like Jesus. This is a unique man in all of history. He is not like anyone else. He is different and other. There's none like Him. But how? Well, we're going to talk about that because I think that we are told more about how this King is unique. But before we move on, let me just give a quick public service announcement. It's very good as, as we're beginning the ser- sermon and we're beginning this series just to stop and think about what this means for you and me as we move through the Gospel of Mark. I think it means a lot. I think that as we see this, this vision that Mark gives us of who Jesus is, this means that if Jesus is who He says He is, and He is, then all of us are going to need to change. Every one of us. There is none in here that is beyond needing to change with the arrival of Jesus Christ. Now for some of you, that means that you might need to make Jesus your King for the very first time time. That's my prayer for you. That's what I'm going to be praying for this series. That some of you will for the first time put your faith, your confidence, your trust, your life in Jesus as a unique King, the unique Son of God. For others of you, this means that you need to seek more of God's reign in your life. And that's all of us. All of us need more of Jesus reigning in our lives, changing us, transforming us more in the image of His Son. And so we should expect God in this series and in the Bible and really as we view all of Scripture, we should come in with the expectation. Hear me. The expectation every time we read the Bible and as we look at Jesus that we are going to find some of our most deeply rooted beliefs and convictions and loves challenged and changed because Jesus is King. You get it? If Jesus is on the throne, things are going to change. And that's the message that we find here. So let me just encourage you, as we get ready for the Gospel of Mark, strap up and let's see who Jesus is. Now, verse 2. Verse 2 flows from verse 1. You might say, how? We're going to talk about it, but verse 2, it flows from verse 1. Because Jesus is who He says He is, let me talk about this coming messenger. What we're going to see here is, is that we've been waiting a long time for this good news that Jesus has brought us. We've been waiting a long time in verses 2-3. to So look with me in in God's Word again, in verses 2-3. to You'll notice that these are verses that are set off a little bit different than the rest to show that they're a quote from the Old Testament. And here's what he says. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Mark doesn't hear as he comes uh, before us. He's telling us something fundamental about the nature of who Jesus is. And catch this. Mark says the gospel begins with the fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic expectation of a desert preacher. That's right, the prophets, they, they said before Jesus comes, we're going to have a desert preacher. Uh, I guess he would have preached in a place sort of like Phoenix, right? It's dry, it's dead, and, and he's going to come and he's going to preach there. And Mark, here, I believe what he's doing, it seems uh, pretty clear that he's combining Malachi 3.1 with Isaiah 43. Even though it says Isaiah says it, he's combining these two verses. Now, you'll remember that Malachi is that last prophet that preached in the Old Testament. So if you were to look in your Bible, if you had a paper copy, I don't know what they do in the the iPad version, but if you were to go to the Old Testament to the very end, you'll find usually a, a blank page that separates the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so you have Malachi, and then after Malachi, you'll notice usually there's some kind of blank page. And then you get to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, these Gospel testimonies. And this, this white piece of paper, it, it doesn't mean nothing. This actually means 400 years of God's silence from the time of Malachi until John the Baptist shows up prophesying, preaching in the wilderness. And so here we find, after 400 years of silence, a voice that comes and preaches. Now I don't have time to deal with Uh, both of these texts, the one in Malachi and the one in Isaiah. But since Mark names Isaiah, I want to speak about Isaiah for a minute to help us understand this is is what is probably the ground of what we find being preached in preparation of the coming of John the Baptist. And then I want to explain it. In fact, I, I think that just maybe Malachi, who comes 300 years after Isaiah, might in his mind be speaking of a messenger that he looks forward to to prepare us for Jesus because he's looking back and drawing from Isaiah. And so if we understand Isaiah, we might understand better both. See, Isaiah, he prophesied during the days of the great nation of Assyria. And when I say the great nation of Assyria, let me just be clear. Uh, They were not great because they were good. Uh, They were great because they were powerful, but they were a wicked nation who oppressed others, mowing down her enemies like grass, before, the, before coming against Israel and Syria, who had formed an alliance. Now, you'll remember that Israel and Judah, they had split. And so they were really different nations and bodies with different kings at this time. And it's at this time that Israel and As- Assyria, uh, Israel and Syria, this is going to be confusing, Assyria and Syria are both part of this story, and they are different, okay? Assyria begins with an A, Syria begins with an S. we, we clear? Are we on the same page? Okay, all right. I wasn't, so I wanted to get us all there together. And so what we find is that Judah refused to join the coalition of Israel and Syria to fight Assyria. And Judah, as they did that, uh, found themselves at the end of an attack from Israel and Syria. And so Judah's king Ahaz had a great idea. Well, what I'll do is I'll talk to Assyria to help me fight them. And so Assyria did so. But in, and they did that in 722 B.C. where they destroyed Israel. But just 20 years later, Assyria said, okay, who's next on the docket? Well, now it's Judah. Remember, they just sought help from Assyria and now Assyria's attacking Judah. Kind of like what the prophets warned. Isaiah warned Judah would happen. It happens. And what we find is, is that Isaiah once again warned the king, this new king Hezekiah, Not to join up with Assyria, or not to join up with Egypt to fight Assyria this time. In Isaiah 36 to 37, what we find is is that because Israel or Judah decided to trust God and not seek help from Egypt, but to trust her God and to be faithful and to obey God's word, God came in miraculously and in one fell swoop killed 185,000 Assyrians that were attacking Judah. And what we find is, is that it is the one city that we ever find, the one state that we ever find, that Assyria attacked but did not conquer. And so as a result, God saved Judah. But in Isaiah 39, right after this miraculous provision of salvation, Hezekiah had the Babylonians come visit, and he said, hey, let me show you all of my cool stuff. I want to show you all of my treasures and how great I am. And hey, just in case in the future you want to do something together, uh, I just want you to see these things. And after that, God foretold that Babylon one day would take Judah too off into exile after King Hezekiah was gone. And so Isaiah 40 follows immediately after that word about Babylon. That hopeless word of the fact that you're going to have children and grandchildren who are going to be taking off into slavery. I mean, can you imagine the fear can you imagine the sadness and the sorrow as they receive that? And then all of a sudden, in Isaiah 40, God comes and speaks again, even before this has happened or been fulfilled. And God enters the scene with these words, Comfort, comfort, O oh my people. You see it? God comforts them and says, I'm not done with you. You think I'm done with you, but I'm not. I'm doing something bigger than you can imagine. I want you to know that I'm actually going to come and I'm going to to deliver you. And we see some of the most beautiful, poetic words of comfort in the whole Bible right on the back end of this horrible promise of disaster. Now, here's why this matters. I believe in Isaiah 40, Isaiah is the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And it's Yahweh Himself who is coming to bring salvation and justice. Just like He already did in Isaiah 37 when He saved Judah from Assyria. He's he's saying, look to Me and I will save you from enemies that you think are indestructible and undefeatable. I I am your great God. Put your confidence in Me. I will save you. A couple of things are fascinating here. First, Isaiah 42 tells us that God Himself, in context, God Himself has paid double for their sins. Now tell me, what, what does it matter that God paid double for their sins? Well, if it's just single, maybe you come up a little bit short, right? You might be nervous that God just made it. But here what He's saying is, is that God has more than paid for all of your sins. There's nothing to be feared. There's, there's some left over for the power of the grace of God that's on display here. It's not just a minimal payment. He has paid it in full. But we see a second thing here. God says in the context of Isaiah 40 that the promises that were local to Jerusalem would go global. Isaiah 45. He says in the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see the glory of God together. Of course, Malachi coming 300 years after Isaiah remember that other prophet that's quoted there? He comes 300 years after Isaiah and 40 years be- 400 years before John the Baptist. And he said he was looking for a greater messenger than Isaiah. Who would come before Yahweh, return to his temple in all of his glory. And that, that messenger who came would signal, Yahweh's coming. Do You see it? In, in other words, Isaiah spoke better than he knew. A messenger in the wilderness crying out to prepare the way for God signals the God of the prophets is bringing a great message. Eschatological hope and a new creation to the people of God. I'm going to do something new, something you haven't seen before. Are you ready for this? Let me just ask you as we stop right here. What we find is is that this messenger, when he comes, it means that God is doing something brand new and that is good beyond anything that we've seen before. That's what this messenger will mean. He is signaling the coming of a new creation, and not only that, a new creation that is coming with the presence of Yahweh Himself with the glory that not only the people of God will see, but the glory of the nations. The nations will see it. Now let me just ask you this morning, what is it that you've been hoping in? I think it's a really important question. I think it's a question that the Bible all throughout the Old Testament is asking the people of God. When you are confronted With life's biggest challenges, what are you putting your hope in? When you find that you've come to an end of yourself, when you're trying to help a child that's struggling with addictions, when you feel like your marriage is hopeless. When you're thinking to yourself that you've got a friend that is so far from God that you can't expect him to get back, or maybe this morning you're struggling with some kind of sin that you're trying to excuse or maybe figure out if that's not you or you're figuring out, is it really true that God can love someone like me? What is it that you're putting your hope in? Now, I think that so many of us, when we are hit with stuff, we know what the gospel says, but then there's that sort of way that we respond our first response to life's challenges and a lot of times that doesn't look like the theology that we hold does it you know that's me in my life I find all all the time that I'm hoping in the wrong things and a lot of times I can see that I'm hoping in the wrong things because of the way that I respond when bad things happen so some of you this morning you might be thinking to yourself you know I feel like my life is just a series of really bad southwest commercials you know those want to get away commercials you've seen them like, the lady shows up, and uh, she's, I guess, at, like, her friend's or boyfriend's house, and she's, like, trying to check him out. She goes to the medicine cabinet to see what's going on, and all of a sudden, the shelves crash and everything goes all over the place, and then the, the frame freezes, right? And it goes to, uh, want to get away, right? Like, I need to just fly and get as far away from the situation as possible and pretend like it never happened, Right? And how many of us just kind of run from every situation that we find ourselves in and we're running away from this difficulty rather than running to God and it really just exposes the fact that we haven't been hoping in God in the first place in the way that we're supposed to. Do you see it? I'm not talking about your first knee jerk response. I'm talking about those steps after that. Like not do you just start looking on Southwest to buy a ticket, but do you like actually find yourself at the gate waiting to get on the plane? You know what I'm saying? Like we're ready to just get out of here, get away from God, abandon the situation, rather than looking to God, trusting that God really is able to help us. That if Jesus shows up, things can change. See, I I know that this happens in all kinds of ways. I know that this election cycle, all the buzz, has been about the dissatisfaction with our candidates. And have you noticed how many people are really warning that, hey, if you vote for this person or that person, I'm going to Canada, right? I'm getting out of here. Like, I'm done. <laughs> Friends, that's not just elections, that's families. Like, if you don't do what you're supposed to do or act the way that I think you ought to act, I'm getting a ticket to Canada, I'm going through Southwest, right? Or maybe it's something else this morning. You have a, a spouse or a child, a spouse that you keep hoping would be the way that you want, or the kids that you wish would keep your rules or meet your ideals, and and it doesn't happen, and you're just out because you don't really trust God. You say it's because you don't like them, but it's really because you don't believe that God can do more than what you think He can do. You think that your expectations of God are the limit of His power and authority rather than believing what the Bible says, which is God can shock you, everybody, anybody, even the great prophets of the past with His goodness. Are you ready for God to amaze you with His goodness? Hold fast. Stay faithful. See what God can do. We, we need to know that our hopes and our dreams tell us about what we are looking for and who we are looking to. Who are you hoping in? Who are you looking to? Maybe you need to look at what you're running from to figure out what you really are hoping in and looking to. We live in a fallen world full of disappointments. Full of disappointments and brokenness. And the question is, Do we believe that God is greater than the brokenness of this world? Is God able? I believe God is able to fix and to restore and to reconcile. So says Jesus on the cross, right? So don't settle for less than Jesus. or You'll be disappointed with everyone else all the time. Friends, if you trust Jesus, you'll believe that everyone is made in the image of God and has the potential of being saved, reconciled to God, and being a powerful display of His goodness, So catch this, Mark tells us the Messiah's messenger has arrived to prepare the way and he's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is this Elijah-like messenger that you've been waiting for. So John, like Isaiah, is the voice crying in the wilderness. And this is where we transition from that theological beginning of the Gospel, what the prophets have said, to the beginning of the story of the Gospel Marked by John the Baptist. So here's where we hit real time and we catch up to what's going on in the narrative of the story. And here's where we get to our third point, which is that Jesus is the most amazing person ever to live. He really is. Jesus is the most amazing person ever to live. That's what Mark says in verses four to eight. Now notice there again, uh, we find Mark speaking uh, or giving us John and what John does. So he moves from the messenger to John. So look with me again in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. Here's what he says It says John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were, baptizing, or were bab- being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and locusts. And ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now we see a couple of things here. First, John the Baptist is a great prophet. Do you see it? He's he's picking up that prophetic ministry in the line of Isaiah and Elijah. So Mark's Gospel doesn't tell you about the birth of John or the birth of Jesus. That's why we don't preach Mark a lot during Christmas, right? He doesn't talk about that. He just gets straight to the the life of Jesus as an adult in his ministry. But John the Baptist is, if you've read the other Gospels, Jesus' cousin. And a great prophet like the Old Testament prophets. So the angel foretells John's birth to his father Zechariah, saying, John will go forth in the power of Elijah. That's what he told, uh, told his daddy. He said, look, your kid, John the Baptist, he's going to go forth in the power of Elijah, the prophet. That might explain why John is clothed with camel's hair and wearing a leather belt, right? He's, he's not doing that because like, that's hip like it is today. This isn't like Yeezy fashion, right? He's, he's saying these are the exact clothes that we find Elijah dressed in in 2 Kings 1.8. And so we here have John the Baptist in the wilderness, dressed like Elijah, carrying on a prophetic type role. See, John looks like the great prophet Elijah, who Malachi associates with that coming messenger in Malachi 4. And, And in his birth, John's dad speaks of the greatness of the coming Messiah, Before saying in Luke 176, this is what he says about about his son. His dad, when he speaks, he says this of John the Baptist. He says, And your child will be called prophet of the most high. Do you see that? John the Baptist is the prophet, and he's prophesying for the most high, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Do you see this? So who is it preparing the way for Yahweh? It is John the Baptist. We're seeing the fulfillment of what Malachi and and Isaiah foresaw happening. He's baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now this baptism is different than the Jewish washings. We know that Jews had washings. I just got back from Israel. The synagogues had uh, these pools all around them that they would use for washings uh, twice daily to wash themselves, cleanse themselves for worship, to keep themselves clean. But this is not like that. This is different. See, those baptisms or those uh, washings that they were involved in, uh, they would actually just go in themselves by themselves. But here we find that John the Baptist is administering baptism, of repentance and forgiveness of sins for others. See, this baptism, it signaled a new way of life. Now, what is it that we're to think about this repentance and forgiveness of sins that comes with it? Well, see, I think the repentance and forgiveness of sins is actually meant to be a picture of what ought to have already happened, and this baptism pictures it. See, repentance comes from a word that literally means to change one's mind. Right? So I am, I'm going to change my mind, and, and that's going to happen in such a way that it changes the way that I live. Now, I've been doing a little bit of research on baptism recently, and Everett Ferguson has a large book where he uh, goes through and, and studies baptism over the ages through the early church, And one of the things that he said was in the early church it was very common practice for whenever someone would want to get baptized first they would take them through a course called Two Ways to Live. And and in this course they would actually tell them about what it looked like to follow Jesus instead of following this world. Because they understood that if you were going to follow Jesus you needed to know certain things about who Jesus was. You needed to have an understanding of God and what it meant to be his disciple. And so that's exactly what They would treat new converts. We'll see the coming of the Messiah signals clearly a need for everyone to change. Do you see it? If you're going to make the path straight, everybody needs to turn and change the way that they're living. And if you're baptized, you're acknowledging that. You're also acknowledging that this one that is coming can bring forgiveness of sins. And check out what's happening. All of Jerusalem and Judea are just Flooding out of the city of God. Right? Out of the place where God's presence was supposed to be most centrally experienced in the temple. They are flooding out into the desert where they are finding the forgiveness of sins and repentance. Doesn't that sound fascinating? All of Jerusalem and Judea leaving the city of God. Going out into the desert. Where they meet John at the Jordan River where Joshua led Israel out of Wandering for 40 years in the desert into the promised land. Here they are, back in the desert, ready to have a redo, a restart, a new creation. And here, after 400 years of silence, John comes crying in the wilderness that the new and greater Joshua, King Jesus, is coming. And he's going to inaugurate a new day in the history of God's people. You know, if you knew Jesus was coming over today to your house, I'm curious, uh, what would that be like for you? If you knew that that Jesus were coming and we were getting ready for Jesus, what does that look like? You ever thought about it? What do you do? Let me just ask you this. When normal visitors come over to your house, what does that look like? Well, I know if you're a woman what that looks like. For a guy, it's like, hey, they're friends. No big deal. Right? Uh, for, For ladies, for women, typically, they actually care about others in ways that men ought to. Do not. And they say, you know what? We need, to, we need to straighten this place up. We need to honor our guests by making sure that the Cheeto bag isn't on the couch anymore. Right? Like, need to move it. Need to change it. Have you ever had somebody come over unannounced? And you knew that they were coming in. And you knew that you needed to do something about it. I still remember whenever, uh, I've told you before, when Carrie used to come visit me uh, in seminary. Uh, a couple times before we got married. Um, uh, we were at Mark's house. And Mark loved it because he always knew that my room would get clean in ways it had never been before. He was like, oh, look, I forgot there was carpet in this room. And then I would clean my car. And I'm talking like not just normal like car care. I'm in there like buffing it. I'm polishing the stuff inside. Like even the, the gear shift, that's back when we had five speed, right? I'm like, like sitting there and making sure that it's all clean. I'm looking under the seats. I'm pulling out the French fries. Like I'm getting everything out, Right. I wanted to know that this thing is spotless because this says something about me and something about the way that I think about her. And, and so uh, I tell you, man, like I used to get crazy with it. And um, I also learned that way that there are only so many things that Febreze can do. But the point is, is that like we wanted to get things ready for her. What about you in your house? Have you ever had somebody show up and like, you're like, man, I got like 30 seconds to get this place clean. How full does your closet get? Right, like it does things it wasn't meant to do. You're hiding stuff. You're trying to cover stuff up. Imagine for a second that the visitor coming over, like, actually had X-ray vision. Wouldn't that be annoying? There's nowhere to hide. And imagine that this person not only had X-ray vision, but they actually were able to see you from beginning to end at all times. So that even as you're like covering stuff up and hiding it and shoving it in the closet. The visitor is just watching the whole time. And this visitor isn't just a friend. This is the Lord of your life who came and laid down his life for you and shed his blood for you and loves you beyond any way that you can imagine. And you're sitting there trying to hide from him things that he is watching all the time. Friends, that's exactly the kind of image that we get of Yahweh showing up. And that Yahweh that shows up is Jesus Christ himself. And when Jesus shows up, there is nowhere to hide. Now, there's great hope in that. Because Jesus has always demonstrated, He's already demonstrated the extent of His love for you that He laid his, down, his life down for you. He laid down His life knowing what you've done. Knowing what you're doing. Knowing what you will do. And He tells you to come. Come near to the Christ who has come to you. That's the invitation that we get here. So friend, I just ask you that this morning, what is it that you're doing? How, how are you this morning preparing for the coming of Jesus knowing that nothing is hidden from His sight? Knowing His goodness. Knowing His power and His grace. How are you preparing for the coming of the Messiah? Because He's come, but we know how the story ends. He's coming again. See, John prepared the way for Him by telling us to repent of our sins. Because, catch this, there is forgiveness. There's forgiveness. You can repent of sins, not because you are strong or great, but because God is. And there's hope. Not because you are really good down deep, but because God is good in such a way that He can actually make you good through the power of His Spirit. You see it? If you're a non-Christian this morning, let me tell you that Jesus is coming. And what that means for you is the same thing that it means for me. It's that you need to change all of your life. That's what the gospel means. Now, what I know is I have great hope when Jesus comes back because I have the blood of Jesus because I put my faith in Him. But if he's coming back and you haven't done this, then friend, you need to know that there is a way that you need to change your life in significant ways. I don't know what you're hoping in or living for this morning, but you need a new king who, friend, can save you from your sins. See, God says that we are sinners and we need to be saved from our sins. Here's the deal. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners. That is the default mode that we were born into. Sinners by nature and choice. And even if you don't commit adultery or steal, you've wanted to, and Jesus says that's sin too. We're going to get there. But whether you feel like it or not, God's word says that you need forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. See, sin debts must be paid. And the Bible says they must be paid with blood. But the good news, come in close, the good news is that Jesus came and paid your sin debt double at the cross. That's what Isaiah tells us. And God raised him from the dead as the king of kings to confirm his promise to forgive all those who put their faith in Christ. Friend, do you want new life today? I know you do. Don't leave without talking to me or another Christian about how you can get it by turning from living for sin to living for Jesus. A Christian in the Bible says that we, when we repent of sin, We do it when we first come to Jesus, but then we also enter into a life where we are consistently turning from living for sin to God until Jesus returns. More and more of our heart is being given over to Jesus. Y'all know this. I mean, when you come to Christ, it's amazing how much you change. And then one of the things that changes is you reveal, it's revealed to you how much more you need to change, right? Like before you thought things were great, but then you came to Christ and you're like, Wow, things were way worse than I thought they were. Now they're far better than I hoped, but man, they're worse than I knew. Friends, the hope is great in Christ. Maybe this morning, as you think about the coming of Christ, you simply need to be reminded today that Jesus has arrived and He has given us His Spirit. Maybe you simply need to be reminded of that. See, everything changes when authority shows up. You know what I'm talking about. Like, when the police are behind you, you know you're going the speed limit or at least within five miles right? And yet, you kind of hit the brakes, right? And you, you straighten up, and you're like, all right, both hands on the wheel. Need to stop texting, right? Yep. And that's some confessions of laughter there. See, it's because we know that there's authority, and when authority shows up, we all of a sudden see ourselves more clearly. It's the same thing that we see whenever our boss shows up. And is watching us work or asking us questions, we think we've done everything right, but all of a sudden we start to question ourselves. So friends, when Jesus shows up, if we really understand or are meditating on the fact that Christ, he's coming, he's come, his spirit's here, his presence is everywhere, he sees everything, and we need to change, right? And we can because he's helped us. He's given us his blood and he's given us his spirit. So brothers and sisters, what is the Holy Spirit telling you you need to turn from today? maybe it's lust maybe it's adultery either of the heart or the practice maybe this morning it's it's that you're you're greedy you you focus your life on money, what is it? and if Jesus were to drop by your house for lunch today where you could not hide what would you change? see Jesus sees us he's not just an authority he's the vested authority who has given his life as a ransom for us Jesus doesn't he doesn't just sing about his willingness to take a bullet for you. He literally took on flesh and gave his life for you and absorbed God's wrath for us. And he's given us his spirit so that we really can change. So what needs to change? There's one final thing that we see here. It's that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist in verses seven to eight. See, I believe the, the reasons all four gospels speak of John the Baptist is because he was the fulfillment of those prophetic expectations. And some question whether or not Jesus was greater than John the Baptist. I mean, is Jesus really greater than John the Baptist? Because he was kind of a big deal. Well, John does fall in line with the great prophets of the Old Testament. And John the Baptist, he does baptize Jesus. So you think, well, maybe he's greater than Jesus. So you can see how some might be confused. In fact, still to this day, we know that some follow John the Baptist. And even Jesus himself in Matthew eleven eleven. Speaking of John the Baptist, says among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now some of you are like, yeah, that's fine. My mom says the same kind of stuff about me. Yet John the Baptist makes it abundantly clear who is greatest in verses 7 to 8, preaching after me, who comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So catch this. Jesus Himself, says John the Baptist, is greater. He's greater than Abraham. He says He's greater than Moses. He's greater than King David. He's greater than Alexander the Great, than Julius Caesar. He's greater than anybody that you know. He is great beyond measure. And that's more accurate. That's more accurate than any other estimation. More accurate than Time Magazine. More accurate than your mom, your best friend your fan club, there's been no one born of women greater than John the Baptist. And yet, make no mistake, though John the Baptist is the greatest human that has ever been born, he says, I'm not worthy to tie Jesus' shoes. Do you see it? I mean, the, the distance between Elijah and John the Baptist and Jesus isn't even worth measuring. This is far different a kind of person who is coming that I'm the messenger for than anyone that you have ever seen in all of humanity. See, John the Baptist understood that Yahweh was coming and Jesus was not merely fully man, but also fully God and categorically different than every other human. Of course, John the Baptist only knew that fully clear once he saw Jesus in heaven. But Jesus isn't merely the Son of God. He is God's one-of-a-kind Son with whom there is no equal. So catch what this means. At the very beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ... Mark just won't let us by without telling us one must accept Jesus as God. And if that's right, and it is, that means Jesus isn't just our, our homeboy, right? He, he's not less than a friend, but he's, but he's far more than that. And so we need to recover the awe of being in the presence of Jesus, who sits enthroned in heaven, because we know where this story goes. See, Jesus is King of kings and God over us And because Jesus rules God's kingdom, and because we are sinners and fallen, we should expect King Jesus to challenge some of our deepest loves and convictions. In other words, don't expect to meet Jesus and leave the same. So let me just be asking you to think through your life as as we're going through the series and and things that are going to need to change. Uh, The way that you view sexuality, all going to have to change because Jesus showed up. All of us. Maybe you're thinking about somebody other than you that needs to hear this. It's probably you. It's probably us that needs to hear this. Your view of, of marriage, how you treat your wives and your husbands going to need to change because Jesus is here. Whether we view money, whether we worship it or put too much affection in it, think too much about it, it needs to change. Jesus is arriving, right? Everything. See, Jesus is Lord of it all or nothing at all. So what does Jesus' Lordship look like in your life? We want to be asking that. But here are three promises that you can you can take to the bank as you think through this. Three things that change everything. One, Jesus wants what's best for us. Gotta trust Him as you're dealing with this stuff. Jesus wants what's best for us. It's a game changer. He's good. He wants best for us. Number two, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. We know we need to change. We know His purposes are good for us. He, he knows better what we need than we know ourselves. Why? Because He knows us better than we know ourselves. And third, He is able. He's able to help us. You have confidence God really is able. Jesus is able to help you and me. He's able. The help might not look like what we want the help to look like, but He's always able to help us and willing. So those are the things we're going to be thinking about. These three incredible promises as we go through the Gospel of Mark. Let's go to this able, worthy, powerful, good Savior now together. Let's pray.